when I think about what a movement looks like for us, it's, it's really this. You know, it's packing up a truck, it's boxes, it's tape. For us, it was, it was moving to the college town of Madison, Wisconsin. We're super passionate about seeing young people meet Jesus and then have that change the entire trajectory of their life. So what better place to do it than here? We are being launched into a context of 43,000 college students. When you think about leaving family, when you think about leaving friends and start a new thing and struggling through all that, man, we, we gotta get there. We just have to get to the people that are going to be shaping our culture and our country in the years to come. We have students that have come here to help us from across the country to plant, and because they believe in, in the mission of God, and they believe they're a huge part of it. Really, the engine, if you will, of church planting is college students. And if you can give them a church planting vision for the rest of their life, their perspective on life and family and job is going to be around the, the Great Commission. And that vision is what drove us to uproot our lives and to move here to Madison. The crazy thing is, is we're not that unique. We're part of a movement. The reality is, is that there's hundreds of other church planters on campuses all across North America, just like us. This is way bigger than just us, because just about in every place that there's college students, there's planters. You think about just Ohio and Iowa, Alabama, the West Coast and California, there's just people going and planting churches to reach what used to be some of the most unreached people in America. Everyone can have a collegiate reaching vision. When you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, you're really giving with the hope to change the world. That this gift makes this movement possible to millions of college students around this country. Every year that we come to the time of Easter, we are reminded about our partnership as Southern Baptist with the North American Mission Board, and the North American Mission Board is responsible for helping us to push back lostness all across uh, the, the United States and Canada and all of North America. One of the greatest lostness and mission fields, areas of, of lostness, is the collegiate campus, and so through our partnership with North American Mission Board, we're able to help send other people to go and work on college campuses to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You met a couple of them there in Rob and Lisa Warren. And so we want to continue to ask you to pray for our North American Mission Board and our missionaries during this Easter holiday season. Through your giving through our harvest offering, we are able to take a proceeds of that and give a direct gift to the North American Mission Board and the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. But there are also other giving vehicles for you available if you would like to give an additional uh, gift or if you do not give through our harvest offering. There are Annie Armstrong Easter offering envelopes that are available in the pew racks in front of you. And if God so lays it on your heart to continue to support the work of the North American Mission Board, you can give to that and we will add that to what we will take, to get, take up and, and send to the North American Mission Board. So continue to pray. 
and continue to give because we have a huge challenge ahead of us uh, to continue to reach our country with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also on the subject of missions, we want to give you, uh, make you aware of an opportunity we have locally to, uh, to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ in a very tangible way. Uh, we will be having a, a painting party this weekend at Austinville Elementary School, and uh, we need your help. And so if you are available this Saturday, even if you're not available the whole time, we will be meeting at Austinville Elementary School at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we are going to be joining with several other churches in the area that will be partnering with us to help repaint this school. Brother Ken Bush has done a great job of helping us to get ready and doing some work over there to get the walls ready for us to come. And what we need is your body and a paint roller. So if you've got a paint roller or a pan that you can bring with you, uh, we will supply the paint. The, the city's already providing the paint for us. We just need people who are willing to go over and put a fresh coat of paint on the school. So help us out with that. If you would are planning on helping out, if you would let us know by calling the church office or seeing Ken and letting him know that so that we can know about what we need to help as far as preparing for lunch, that would be a huge help for us. So please pray over that and, and join us here this coming Saturday as we uh, paint the halls there at Austinville Elementary School. Also last week I introduced to you and we'll tell you more about it in, in the weeks ahead uh, that we are moving towards an, an online, not an online, but, a, but a, a, what's called instant church directory. Have you, ever, have you ever found yourself wanting to call a church member or maybe you found out about a church member that had been in the hospital or had an emergency and you were thinking, I wish I knew how to get a hold of them. I wish I, I, wish I had their phone number. I wish I had a way to send them an email to encourage them. I don't have their email address. Well, one of the things that helps us out with that is to, is to have access to the church membership. And, and so we are partnering with, with an app called Instant Church Directory. We'll give you some more information about this in the coming days, but there's a little bit of info in your, in your worship guide about it. You can, if you've got a smartphone device or a tablet... You can download this app called Instant Church Directory. If you have an email address that's on file with us as a church, your email address is already in our database. And so when you log on to that app and you open it up, it's going to ask you to enter your email address. And when you do, it's going to ask you to create a login password for yourself that gives you secure access to this. And then once you're able to open that, you are able to access the database for our church members to, you know, if you ever see somebody in the church and if you're new in the church, it's a huge help because when you're new, you don't always know everybody that's been attending for 30 or 40 years. And this gives you an opportunity to get to, 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 to know names and faces and connect those things. So what we need you to do is to download the app and begin to use it, but we also need your pictures. And so we're going to be letting you know in the coming weeks how you can help us out with that. We're going to have a place for you to come and take a picture. We're just going to take a simple picture and upload it on the app. Or you can email us a picture that you would like to use of you and your family, and we can upload that to your profile. I do want to encourage you that this is completely secure. This, this is only available to church members who have email who are in our church database. If we do not have an email on file for you, then you can't access that because that's how we are able to enter you into the system is through your email. Your, your name and your phone number will be there, but you won't be able to access the app without an email. So a couple of things you can do for us. Make sure that in the office we have a working email address for you so that you will have access to the app. 
And then also, if you'll let us know how we can get a picture of you and your family to upload so that people can see your face when they upload your profile. And all of that information is only going to be available to people in our church. You won't be getting calls from telemarketers or anything like that because they won't have access to that unless you give them your email address and log in, in which case you'll have some splaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo said. So uh, we won't be doing that, but help us out with that. We'll give you some more information about that in the days and weeks ahead. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up this morning to Philippians chapter 4. Perhaps you didn't bring a Bible with you today, and if not, that's perfectly fine. We have some complimentary copies of God's Word that are available in the pew racks in front of you. Feel free to use that. Take that with you if you need a Bible. But open up to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 4. In just a minute, we're going to read the the last 11, 12 verses of Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to close out our 12-week journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians. I have been extremely encouraged over the last several weeks by the comments that many of you have made concerning your study of this powerful letter from the Apostle Paul. As we've been seeing for the last 12 weeks that Paul's correspondence to the church at Philippi is a power-packed letter which ignites within us as believers what we have been calling the joy of Christ-centered living. Throughout this four-chapter letter, Paul continues to point the Christians at Philippi, as well as you and me, to live a life that is focused on Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that when we do, and as we do, we will find a reservoir of true spirit-induced joy which ignites the Christian walk. It's as we live a life that is focused on Christ, as we live a life that is focused on the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ, that we find an internal reservoir of spirit-induced joy which allows us to live as the people of God. Last week we looked at the first part of chapter 4 where Paul begins to move from theological and, and doctrinal discussion to practical application. He begins to take us from, from what the gospel is to how the gospel affects our daily living. And chapter 4 is a series of several exhortations and encouragements from the Apostle Paul. Last week we saw that that Paul calls us as believers to, to live in unity with other Christians, to rejoice at all times in every circumstance, to be gentle and gracious with everyone, to demonstrate what the grace of God looks like to other people, to resist worry and anxiety, and to pursue peace with God through prayer and to think redemptively, to to focus on the the things that we think about and to think about things that are pure and right and true and excellent. Well, today as we close the letter of Philippians, Paul is going to show us as Christians how the gospel of Jesus Christ affects our relationship to our resources. And Paul's going to do this because there is a direct and corresponding relationship between a Christian's attitude towards his or her resources and their relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. There is a direct and corresponding relationship between a a Christian's attitude towards his or her personal resources and their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, much of the current evangelical landscape in which we live in today has been infiltrated and hijacked by a false gospel which attaches the promise of financial prosperity to Christians in exchange for public declarations of faith. This heretical false gospel has attached itself 
to the American ideals of greed and excess and created a gospel which doesn't transform anybody and and says that if you have enough faith and you believe hard enough that God will prosper you financially. And in the process of doing that, it blurs the gospel of Jesus Christ which tells us that God has already provided everything we need according to His riches and glory. At the same time, if you've grown up in the, in the church like I have for, for 50 years, many of us have, have grown up in a, in a church culture where a belief that while a person's individual personal financial offering to God is a matter of personal worship and devotion, many times we have made it an act of secret which isn't to be talked about or spoken of. And many pastors are afraid to bring up the subject of money and possessions for fears that church members might get offended. Oh, there he goes talking about money again. Well, the problem with that is a couple of things. Number one, you can't preach through the Scriptures without preaching about money because the Scriptures talk about money. And you can't can't preach in a way that is healthy and biblical without talking about what God's Word talks about. Jesus talked more about money and our attitude towards our possessions than He did about heaven or hell. And while offerings in the Scriptures were always a matter of personal worship, they were often given in a public manner. You remember the story of Jesus and the disciples in the temple and He commends the widow for putting in the two coins and He says that she gave more than everybody. Why did He say that? Because... In the offering in the temple, people went publicly and placed their offering in the, in, the, in the vial to collect their offering. And do you remember when Micah said, bring to me the whole tithe into the storehouse. And so while your tithes and your offerings may be an act of private devotion and worship, they are also part of the public worship of the body of Christ. Personally, I have found that usually the only people that get offended when you speak on the subject of money are those whose hearts are being controlled by greed or those who have never been discipled about the proper attitude towards money. And I've determined a long time ago that I will not reduce the Word of God to cater to the greedy or the undiscipled. And so if God's Word talks about money and possessions, then we're going to talk about money and possessions. And that's exactly what God does today in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to talk about the gospel and our resources. And as we, before we read the text, I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about this question for a second. Jimmy's going to put it on the screen for us. And that question is this. Not that we're going to, not that it's any of my business. I have no intention of doing this. But if, if you and I were to sit down today and talk about your relationship with Christ and your relationship with God... And you and I were to do a reconciliation and an inventory of the ways that you have spent your finances and stewarded your possessions, what would it say about your belief in God? Think about that. If we did a reconciliation and inventory of the ways that you have spent your finances and the ways that you have stewarded your possessions, what would it say about your belief in God? Many of us think that those two things have nothing to do with one another. The problem is the scriptures say they have everything to do with one another. And so how are you investing the financial resources that God has given you for the advancement of the kingdom of God? Are you stewarding the home in which you live as a place where the gospel can be demonstrated to people? Have you made personal sacrifices with your own possessions in order to give you greater flexibility to help others know Christ who don't know Him? 
And so what we're going to see in this text today as we close out the book of Philippians is that the, the church in Philippi is a great model on what a giving church looks like and the reality that the gospel bears within the church a culture of generosity. When the gospel is sown within the church, the resultant of that is a culture of generosity. And so with that in mind, I want us to read this text beginning in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. You've done so good when you've been sitting already. So let's stand in honor of God's word for just a second. And let's read this text where Paul closes out this letter and writes to them in verse 10 of chapter 4 and said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, speak to us today through your word about how we can have the proper attitude towards our resources. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated if you would. Thank you for that. Today I want us to basically come out of here with this one truth in our mind. It's our takeaway for today, and that is simply this, that our relationship to our resources, financial, personal, our relationship to our resources is a key reflection of our understanding and trust in the gospel. In verse 10 that we read a second ago, Paul expresses great joy because evidently the Philippians through Epaphroditus had sent him a very generous financial gift. As a matter of fact, Paul says they had revived their concern for him, meaning that they had now showed concern once again in, in, in a financial means. And he, he talks about in verse 15 that, that they had partnered with him when he first left Macedonia. They were the only ones that initially partnered with him, that they partnered with him financially in Thessalonica. And now that he's in Rome, they send him another financial gift to help support him. Paul doesn't say why the Philippians had stopped giving. Perhaps it was because many of the believers in the church at Philippi were not very wealthy and enduring persecution, and, and maybe they lacked the financial resources as a church for a time to be able to support Paul. Perhaps they just couldn't get him a financial gift because they, they didn't know how to do that. They didn't know where he was in Rome, and, and they didn't even know that he was in Rome for a while. And once they found out about it, they took up a, a, an offer and sent it to him. We don't really know why they didn't give a gift, but what he says is that while they lacked opportunity, they never lacked concern for the kingdom of God. And that's an important point because what we need to understand from the Philippians is no matter what the current status of our pocketbook is, 
We should always have a concern and a desire to use our resources to help others spread the gospel and to help others know the gospel. Whatever the current status of our pocketbook, whatever the current status of our bank account or our 401k, there should always be within God's people a concern to partner and to use our resources to help spread the gospel to make sure that others come to know Christ. That's why we highlight things like the North American Mission Board. That's why we take up an offering for the Harvest Offering. That's why we speak to you about missions. That's why we want to encourage you to pray for our missional partnerships. That's why we're partnering in a very tangible way with Danny Perkle and the H2O Church because because there's a a college campus in the University of Cincinnati with thousands of college students who don't know Christ and we've got a church right there that we can partner with. And so while we may sometimes lack opportunity, while sometimes we can't do the things we would like to do, we should never lack for concern about wanting to use our resources in such a way that it advances the gospel of Jesus. And so with that in mind, very quickly, let me give you four attitudes which display a Christ-centered perspective on our resources. Just four attitudes, four thoughts about a Christ-centered perspective on our resources. And the first of the things that Paul says to us here is that as believers in Christ, we should cultivate a grateful heart. We should cultivate a, a heart of gratitude. As you see in verse 10, Paul says again that he rejoices that they have revived their concern for him. And he says, you've been concerned for me, but you didn't have opportunity. But at the beginning, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He doesn't just express joy. He expresses great joy, abundant joy and gratitude. But look at what he says. He doesn't say, I am grateful to you Philippians. He doesn't say, thank you Philippians for your gift. That's how you and I oftentimes would do things, right? Somebody, somebody's very generous towards us. They, they give us a, they give us a, a gift that, that's a little bit extravagant. They, they come at the right time to, to meet a need for us and we immediately want to thank them. That's something right and proper. But Paul takes that even a step further. He doesn't say to the Philippians, thank you for your gift. He says, I rejoice in the Lord for your gift. You know why? Because he's expressing gratitude to God by way of writing the Philippian Christians. And his gratitude is God-directed because Paul understands this, that the true source of financial blessings was not the church in Philippi, but to the Lord Jesus Christ who inspires a culture of gospel-centered generosity in the hearts of the church. Whenever we are blessed by others, it's not necessarily because of their generosity. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ who inspires generosity in the hearts of people, who transforms our hearts from being people who are once marked by personal consumption to now being people who are marked by personal generosity. And what we see here is Paul expressing the idea of being a gracious receiver of resources. And that's an important point because many of us in here like to be givers. How many of you like to give things to people? Anybody? You like to you just like to you like to help people out, you like to give them things. You you like to, you know, when we talk about doing the Operation Christmas Child boxes, you just get excited because you you're going to go and buy a bunch of little dollar stuff at the dollar tree and stick it in a paper box, but it's just so much fun to do that because we want to we want to have a heart to give. We like to give things to other people. Sometimes we like to give because we want to be helpful. Sometimes we like to give because secretly we like to be recognized for giving. 
Sometimes we feed off the need of being needed by others. But many of us struggle with being recipients of the generosity of others. I know many Christians who love to be helpful and give to others, but when somebody wants to help you out, you're like, oh, no, 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 we don't need any help. It happens all the time. Somebody has a, has a need in the church. They go to the hospital, and we say, what do you need? Can we get you some meals? No, 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 we're okay. Then you go home, and your, your poor spouse who's been struggling with you in the hospital all day is trying to figure out where they're going to go get food because you're a little bit too proud at that moment to accept the generosity of the church to help you out. Maybe you're going through a season where things are tight financially and someone in the church says, hey, why don't you let us take up an offering in the Sunday school class to help you out? No, 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 we, we, we don't need, because many of us, we love to give, but we have a hard time receiving from others. The gospel shows us not only how to be gracious givers, but it also shows us how to be gracious receivers. Because there's a direct and parallel relationship between our joy and our gratitude at what God has given to us, not only through Jesus Christ, but through His people. I put in your notes here that joy is birthed in the soil of gratitude. Real joy in our lives is birthed in the soil of gratitude. Because the reality of it is, is that when the gospel is sown among a group of people, the gospel forces us to admit that we don't have the resources. That's the reason why we need a Savior. And that's the reason why we need the church. Because you and I don't have the resources on our own. We don't have the resources to earn our salvation. And we don't have the resources to do this Christian life apart from God's people. We are dependent upon the grace of God to save us. And likewise, we need to cultivate a grateful heart for the graces that others put in our life that deepen our joy in Christ and our joy in Christ's people. Paul understood what it was like to be a gracious receiver and to express gratitude, not just to somebody saying, hey, thank you for the meal that you brought, but I rejoiced in the Lord with exceeding joy because you took care of me. Gratitude is important for another reason because it's as we cultivate a grateful heart that we're going to see here that gratitude breaks the power of greed and entitlement in our lives. I know people who are very generous givers who are also very greedy and entitled people. And they give a lot, but they're also very greedy in the process. You know why? Because while they give a lot because they want to be recognized or seen for that, they're not always grateful for what they have because they, they live with a heart that is marked by greed and entitlement. I've, I've earned everything that I've got, and I've got everything that I deserve in life. And the problem with that is, is that you haven't gotten everything that you deserve in life. Because the reality of it is, is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and we stand as as unrighteous sinners before a holy God, and if we're going to get everything that we deserve in life, we're in big trouble. Gratitude breaks the power of greed and entitlement. We live in a culture that is steeped in greed, the pursuit of excess, and the idea that we are entitled to what we want when we want it, and the gospel comes in to shatter the whole idea of entitlement because the only thing that you and I are entitled to is an eternal separation from God. And so the first step, the first attitude that we need to cultivate in our heart is, a, is gratitude. Gratitude towards God and gratitude towards others. But secondly, we need, to, we need to cultivate an attitude that pursues contentment over prosperity. Pursue contentment 
over prosperity. Look at verses 11 through 13. Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How many of you would like to know that secret? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. What an incredible statement there, Paul says. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and the secret of facing hunger. The secret of having more than I need and the secret of being in great need. But this is not a public secret. It's, it's not, it's not some, this is a public secret. It's not a private secret. It's not a, a secret that Paul is talking about because it's something that is hidden and not knowable. Sometimes there are secrets that we have in life because they're, they're hard to figure out. And we, we're not supposed to know them. But, but Paul says this is a secret that, that all of us are to know. It's a, it's a secret not because it's not knowable. It's a secret because most people don't apply it. And what is the secret to having peace no matter what your financial status is? It's the word contentment. Contentment is the secret to having peace with God no matter what's going on with your bank account. No matter what's going on in your family financially. Contentment is not a popular word in an affluent consumeristic culture. You and I live in a world that is marked by personal consumption. We live in a world that is driven by success and the need for more. We live in a world where, where, where we are continually told to expect more, seek more, look for more, and don't be satisfied with anything less. And that's what people define contentment as. Contentment in our world is settling for less than what you really desire. But that's not what the Bible calls contentment. Contentment is not settling for what you have, but contentment is trusting in what God has provided. When Paul says, I have learned the secret of being able to face plenty and need, abundance and need, it's not settling for what you have at that moment, but it's trusting in whatever you have in that moment God has provided for you. Contentment means that we come to acknowledge that everything in life doesn't always depend on us all the time. And for some of you, that's a very hard pill to swallow right now. But let me let you in on, a, on another little secret. You really aren't that much in control, of, in, in control of your life as you think you are. And your life is not 100% dependent upon you 100% of the time. As a matter of fact, if your life is dependent on 100% of your effort, 100% of your time, then there's a great chance that you're not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Contentment means coming to acknowledge that everything doesn't always depend upon us. Instead, our lives are ultimately in the hands of a sovereign God who is not only an all-powerful deity, but also a good Father who knows how to meet our needs. That's why Jesus reminded us in Matthew chapter 6, not to worry and not to be anxious, because the same God who feeds the birds and clothes the fields knows exactly what you need at this particular moment. And that contentment is not settling for less than what you want in life, but contentment is trusting that whatever I have in life right now, this is what God has provided for me in His sovereignty, and He wants me to be a good steward over it. 
whether in abundance or whether in need. And since all of us are ultimately in the hands of a sovereign God, we know that whatever we have, we have because God has sovereignly declared it to be so. This, this is one of those lessons that we don't think about in life until a tragedy strikes. And then we see a hurricane destroy an entire coastline and wipe out people's houses. Or a tornado ravage a town. And what do you see when you see that happen? What do, you, what do you see the survivors talk about on the newscast? We're just grateful for our family. We're just grateful for our lives. And ultimately, all of this is just stuff. We lost a lot, but all of it can be replaced. The things that really matter, those are the things that we still have. And the reality of it is, is that every single one of us can have every single possession that we own taken away from us in a moment's notice. Nothing we possess on this earth is completely ours and cannot be taken at any time by the hand of a sovereign God. And this is why we cannot define our life by continually wanting what we have and continually being discontented in life. Some of you can relate to this poem. Poet writer said, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the, and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 that I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never really got what I wanted. The reality of it is that many of us can relate to that because we live our lives completely discontented and completely looking forward to what we don't have instead of understanding that we live under the hand of a sovereign God who has given us exactly what we need. Paul declared to Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, as we pursue the life of Christ with a contented heart, we experience the growth that we really desire in life. And as Paul says here, we will get an education in contentment eventually. All of us will get an education through the school of contentment. And it comes through the school of plenty and the school of want. Paul knew what it was like to dine at the table with rich food. And he knew what it was like to eat slop in a Roman prison. And no matter what, Paul was contented with this one truth. Jesus Christ is enough. And contentment is simply coming to truly believe that if you have Christ, that is enough. Contentment also helps us to battle the obstacles of greed and the obstacle of envy. Many of us tend to think that greed is a rich person's problem and envy is a poor person's problem. But the truth of the matter is that these enemies of the heart are continually in our hearts and they are always tied Neither of them are tied to the reality of our financial status. In Africa, in the Choli people in Uganda where I travel, we see 
this idea of greed and entitlement and envy manifests itself among a group of people who live in one year off of less than most of us make in one month. And yet we watch as, as, a, as a lady in the community comes to church and she's gotten a new dress that week. And, and it's a dress that many of us would go buy at the thrift store for a dollar and a half. But she wears it to church and some of the other ladies get mad and fuss and gossip because she's got a new dress and she's fancying it and, and touting it and showing itself off. And they get envious and greedy over a dollar and a half thrift store dress. Greed and envy have very little to do with the reality of your financial status. The gospel calls us to pursue contentment over prosperity because the reality is that prosperity is an elusive goal which you will never attain. Verse 13 is one of the most familiar and yet misapplied verses in all of the Bible. It is quoted by athletes who use it to channel their athletic success. It's put on coffee mugs. It's, it's preached from prosperity gospel churches. And yet the entire focus of this text is not about promising to be able to achieve great feats through Christ. You see, no matter how strong my walk with Jesus is, I will never, I repeat, never be able to run a 4.4 40-yard dash. No matter how strong my faith in Jesus is, I will never, no, never be able to dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal. But Paul is saying when he's talking about doing all things through Christ is not channeling some sort of spiritual strength that enables you to do supernatural feats. It's, it's connected to our union with Christ and the idea of contentment. And it's understanding that being content with what you have and what you can do and knowing that your union with Christ is enough that brings contentment in each and every situation. And so if you have Christ, you can do all things through Him who strengthens you because He knows exactly what you are able to do and what you need at that moment. Thirdly, the third attitude that we need to cultivate is that we need to cultivate an attitude which invests in gospel partnership. In verses 14 through 18, he talks about the partnership of the Philippians when he says, It was kind of you to share in my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. What, what Paul is talking about here is partnership in the gospel. Paul recognizes a tangible way that the gift of the Philippians was not just an act of charity on their part, but an investment in the gospel in the apostle Paul. Do you remember when we started this letter in Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5? Paul said he was thankful to the Philippians every time he thought about them. Remember, I thank my God every time I remember you. Do you remember why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul recognized their partnership in the gospel at the beginning of the letter, and then he recognizes in a tangible way how their financial gift was not just a, an act of benevolence and charity on their part. They were investing in the mission of Paul. And they were not just partners of Paul financially, but they were partners in prayer, and they were partners in rejoicing at the advancement of the gospel wherever Paul went. Because once the gospel becomes the central focus of a church, a church listen carefully, once the gospel becomes the central focus of us as a people, then we will devote everything we have to make sure that the gospel is advanced wherever necessary, no matter the cost. 
Once we come to realize the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God not only for our salvation, but the salvation of every person on this planet, then we will never become content until we can become contented that we will do whatever is necessary to advance the gospel. Many of us have had a phone call or a conversation with someone who wanted to sell us on the, on the greatness of their product or their investment. And they speak to us about the rate of return and promise us that if we'll just buy this product, if we'll just invest in this company, that we will get back more than what we return and then some. And many of us have come to be skeptical of that. But let me tell you this, an investment in the kingdom of God has a 100% rate of return every time. As a matter of fact, it has more than that. You cannot invest anything in God's kingdom that will not be abundantly blessed by Him. The Philippian church understood this principle, so they supported Paul in Thessalonica, and they took up another offering to support him in Rome. And Paul describes their gift as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, using imagery that was borrowed from the Old Testament sacrifices where God's people would go to offer their sacrifices and the priests would go into the, to the Holy of Holies where, where the incense was being burned as a pleasing aroma and burnt offerings were being given that pleased God. And as God's people, we should be asking this question, how can we do more for the kingdom of God? Not what are we doing and is it enough? And let me listen carefully. As long as I'm a pastor here, there will never be the question, how can we cut from missions? Never. Well, we're doing enough in missions right now. Really? 4.2 billion people on our planet who do not know the name of Jesus. 200 people within North America, 200 million people within North America who don't know the name of Jesus. We're never doing enough. How can we do more? How can we do more to plant churches? How can we do more to go to unreached people groups? How can we do more to tell our friends and neighbors in Decatur about the glorious love of Jesus Christ? You see, when we invest our resources in the advancement of the gospel in God's kingdom, as Paul says in verse 17, we are the ones who get the greater fruit. That's what he says. Paul says, I wasn't just looking for your gift. I was seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul opened the letter by, by praising God and praying for them that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And then he closes it by showing them that God has brought the fruit of righteousness through their generous giving. And so Paul praises the Philippians because of their investment in the partnership in the gospel. And you and I need to be committed to partnering our resources in the advancement of the gospel. But finally, you and I need to learn to trust in God's gracious and sovereign provision. That's really the ultimate theme of this entire section. It's the, it's the secret to having a grateful heart. And it's the secret to having an contented heart. And it's the secret to sowing your resources to invest in the kingdom of God. And that is, it comes from a heart that trusts in the gracious and sovereign provision of God. Verse 19 is one of my favorite promises in the Bible. The Bible says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Right now, you should underline that verse in your Bible and you should commit it to memory this week. We have a God who abundantly supplies everything we need and knows our need even before we know it ourselves. Jesus reminded us that 
We don't have a distant Father in heaven who capriciously looks down on us and demands more of us, but Jesus told us that our Father in heaven is a good Father who gives good gifts to His children. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this, God is able to bless you abundantly. That's a great promise. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What does that mean? That means that you have a good and gracious and sovereign God who knows exactly what you need at all times in all things, and He's going to provide it for you. And while God does not always fulfill our desires, He always supplies our needs. While God does not always fulfill our desires, He always supplies our needs. God does not promise to fulfill our greed, but He does promise to fulfill our need. And God has never promised that His blessings are tethered to our personal desires and wants and wishes. The psalmist did say, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. But that's not a prosperity promise that says as long as you love God and go to church, God's going to prosper your bank account. Why? Because the desires are grounded in the Lord, not in ourselves. Delight yourself in the Lord and when He's your delight, He will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because the delight of your heart is not stuff. The delight of your heart is what? The Lord. And so if you delight yourself in the Lord, you know what the Lord gives you? More of Him. And too much of our time, we come to our resources and go wrong because we focus our desires in the wrong places. And our desires are grounded in consumption, entertainment, and excess. But we have a good, gracious Father who knows that more is not always better for us. So Paul says that God will meet our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that our real needs are always first spiritual before they are physical. Our real needs are always spiritual before they are physical. And God knows that our greatest need is not more that feeds us. Our greatest need is God Himself and the person of Jesus Christ. The riches of God's glory are not always physical prosperity, but the spiritual riches of Christ and salvation. And the fullest display of the riches of God are found not in our bank account, but they're found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The fullest display of God meeting our needs according to His riches in glory was seen on the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us all things? If God has so wonderfully demonstrated that He would give up His own Son for our salvation, how will He not also graciously in His sovereignty meet our needs? And so let us return for a moment to our takeaway. Our relationship to our resources is a key reflection of our understanding and trust in the gospel. And the truth is that God's gracious provision is seen not in the state of our assets and our resources, but in the gift of His Son to be our Savior. Our God is a sovereign God who has worked a plan through His people, prophets, and the course of human history to adjust the right time to send His Son to die on the cross at the hands of sinful men so that He could place all the guilt and shame that you and I deserve onto His Son to pay our price for us. And so right now, for many of us in here, it's not a matter of, of, of what's going on in our bank account. It's a matter of what's going on in our heart. 
And it's trusting in the riches of Jesus Christ that were bought for us on the cross. But the reality is that you and I have to receive that gift that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We have to get to the point in our life where we understand that salvation is not a matter of what we can do in our own strength. It's not a matter of our own righteousness. It's not a matter of how many boxes we check that, that demonstrate that we love God. It's a matter of trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us. So in just a moment, we're going to offer you an opportunity, an invitation this morning to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior. To say, you know what? I want to receive the riches of glory in Christ Jesus and that begins with receiving who Jesus is myself. And maybe you've gone to church all your life, but you've never truly been saved. You've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've just been a good religious person. Religion won't save anything in you. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ will. And so in just a moment as we sing this song of invitation, we want to give you an opportunity to come and receive the Lord Jesus this morning. And Maybe you're not ready to do that today. Maybe you're not ready to walk an aisle in front of a bunch of people and, and admit your need, but maybe you need to talk to one of our staff members after church and say, I just need to know how I can be saved. We'll be glad to talk with you about that. Would you pray? and Then we'll offer our invitation. Father in heaven, we thank you again that you are not only a sovereign God who, who controls every corner of our life, but you are a good and gracious Father who not only gives good financial needs and possessions to your children, but ultimately you give us Jesus himself. And so I pray, Father, today for those who are here who, who do not have peace with you. They struggle with, with where they are and what they believe. They struggle with, with having peace in their heart. They keep thinking they need to do more in order to please you when the reality of it is is they can't do more than what Jesus has already done and that you're fully pleased in him. So, Father, I pray that you would give people today the, the power to set aside that idea of earning their own salvation and the trust in what Jesus has done for them. Would you free us today from the idea of earning your favor and, and help us to trust in the grace of Christ today? Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this song and respond as the Lord Jesus Christ leads you today.